From beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of room and innuendo, all offered up by a panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring Democrat Patrick Hanley, conservative commentator Stephanie Hitt, from the University of Rochester, author Kurt Smith, and later on in the broadcast, veteran political reporter Bill Schneider, formerly of George Mason University, and now writing for The Hill also many years as the senior political analyst for CNN. This is Bruce Dumont. Welcome to our broadcast. We're coming to you live from our studios in beautiful Elk Grove Village, the WYND AM 560 studios. Phone lines open 1-800-723-8029. We have about three or four sheets of this subjects we want to talk about tonight. We will see how many we get to. And, and I want to begin with, with uh, one of the big stories of the week. The president addressed the nation over uh, the, the battle that's going on in Congress over uh, the infrastructure bill and how it's going to be paid for and, and everything else. The Democrats don't completely have uh, their act together. Uh, Republicans are chiming in at certain points, but uh, there's a lot there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of skullduggery going on as well as confusion going on in Washington on that. But the one thing that the president wanted to make a point, he wanted to be very clear about it, when it comes to pay the bill, the bill is going to be paid by the rich. He went on and on to talk about that the rich don't pay their fair share. Those those terms were used over and over five or six times in his speech. So I would like to begin. You're a management consultant, uh, Patrick Hanley. You're a Democrat this evening. Uh, and I want, I want to get a, just a basic discussion going amongst ourselves, and maybe the audience will also join in. What is rich? What does rich mean to you? Well, what Rich means to the president when he was campaigning was anybody making over $400,000 a year. Frankly, I think that's kind of a generous definition of rich. I think there's plenty of folks that can count themselves among the wealthy uh, making lower than that. But the reality is Joe Biden ran on a platform that he thought could be a big tent, could build a big tent for a party. And so we want to bring as many folks in as possible. Mm -hmm. And he's pledged and he's following through with the Build Back Better plan to to increase taxes and folks making a lot of money. We're talking 400,000 plus and then a surtax on millionaires uh, and on massive capital and gains investments. But in your life, in your daily, you know, whether they are neighbors or relatives. Sure. Again, I want to go back to what you think. What do you think is rich? Do you can you have a lot less than $400,000 and still, in your view, be a rich person? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the reality is it differs based on cost of living, uh, based on the kind of job that you have, based on what income you're earning now uh, versus the wealth that you might have accumulated uh, as a kid from your parents. I think the reality is uh, you can be a rich person bringing in about 100000 in some neighborhoods of Chicago, where where I live in Winnetka, $100,000 is below probably the median income. Mm -hmm. uh, so it really depends. I, you know, I consider rich folks to be somewhere making in the $200,000, $250,000 range. But again, what the president has said is that he's focusing on folks making more than 400000 Okay. Now, you live in Winnetka. You've just identified, for those listening around the country, that's a fashionable North Shore <laughs> neighborhood. Uh, and also, it's very close to Evanston, which also yes. is probably more well-known uh, to the nation, but also a lot of wealthy people in Evanston as well. So let me ask you, uh, Stephanie Hitt, you've lived there for much of your adult life, certainly the last 25 years. Uh, what do you consider to be rich? Well, it's, it, it's interesting because... Um, 
you know, when you, when you think on a personal level, it's like being able to pay your bills and then some. You know, can you take a va vacation? Can you cover the things that you just kind of want to have a nice life? And um, But, you know, um, the problem with this trying to identify who's rich based on a number, and I think Patrick did touch on this a little bit, is, you know, that varies based on where you live, what you do, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the community that you live in, obviously, $100,000 gets you a lot in the middle of Tennessee, but it doesn't get you much in Winnetka. Mm. Um, but the, what, what's lumped into that is people that are defined on their incomes who are considered rich, but all their money goes to the businesses, for example, that they are being taxed on. I mean, how many mm. small business owners, for example, are considered to be rich, but they don't necessarily live a rich lifestyle. I think there's this misconception about people who make a certain amount of money that all they do is stuff their money in the mattresses <laughs> and use it for themselves. But if you and that's a, the problem. But is if, you have sure. a, if you have a business yeah. and you make $400,000 in your business, sure. which the president is de defining as rich, most businessmen would not agree that $400,000 right. is makes that person rich or wealthy. We're not talking about $400,000 in revenue. I mean, the reality is a business could be turning over a million, two million in revenue sure. and only bring in uh, tens of thousands in profit and still mm -hmm. be counted okay. as kind of a middle-class business. For folks that are taking home $400,000 in gross profits, that is your income. Uh, if you want mm -hmm. to reinvest in your business, we also have other, other tax uh, treatments that allow you to do that. You can count those costs in, against uh, the business taxes that you're paying. But if you're bringing home 400000 at the end of the day, that's a lot more than 99% of Americans. Right. And also, there are many taxes. It isn't just the income tax. Right. There's other ex well, taxes. Yeah. True. But also, and that depends on where you live, yeah. too. I mean, Real estate and... You know, state income tax. Different states now are drawing people in in droves because they don't have state income tax. Now, following the speech, uh, it was an, this, these were figures from 2018. They were the <laughs> most contemporary figures that, uh, and again, I saw this on Fox. I'll let you identify where I saw it. But the top 1% mm -hmm. paid more than 40% of all income taxes. Mm -hmm. The top 10% paid more than 71% of income taxes, and the top 25% paid more than 87% of income taxes. Mm -hmm. Now, 87% for 25% of the population, that sounds to me like those people are paying are their paying. fair share. How would you define the word fair share when you, when you lay that over what someone's income might be, Patrick. Yeah, my, my, my two reactions to that are, are, first, we are in a period of pretty unprecedented income inequality. So there's a tremendous amount of income accruing to the top one, top 0.5, top 0.1% of the income spectrum. And why is that happening in your view? Uh, I think in large part because of the erosion of labor. I think, I think in large part because of policy decisions that have been made over the last 40 years uh, to erode the power of unions and collective bargaining to stagnate wages and ensure that money was flowing to owners of capital. I think it's a real problem. Um, but I, I'm sorry, the question you led with. Well, the question is, uh, if 87 percent, if 87 uh, percent right. of income taxes right. are coming from 25 percent of the people, right. that still sounds like 
25% of the people are paying an awful lot of tax. Paying right. most right. of the and taxes. Fair. Right. And, but, and but that, that's pretty that's, fair. That's, that but that mass is an enormous amount of income accruing to those people. And again, I think the better way to think about this is the Buffett rule, right? Like when when Warren Buffett famously yeah. told us that he was paying a lower tax rate than his secretary, despite making billions and billions of dollars. Those are the loopholes that I think Joe Biden is targeting. Well, you know, we can get into like all these loopholes, but you know, I, I, I feel like this is such a typical reiteration of a complete misconception of how the economy really works. And mm. that is that, okay, Warren Buffett, maybe he, you know, there's, he claims to have a, a lower tax rate, but the point is, that tax rate is a reward for the investments that he makes into those businesses, and into those labors. That is money that someone at the secretary level will never do. And what he generates in One terms second. of growing the pie. We're running out of no one's going to hear what that. you're saying. I'm Bruce Dubai, Petrol. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay? 
isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back. We continue, and we are now joined by Kurt Smith. He is with the University of Rochester. Uh, he is a former speechwriter for President George Herbert Walker Bush, and also he is one of the foremost authorities in the United States on the profession of sports broadcasting. And, uh, Kurt, it's nice to have you with us on Beyond the Beltway this evening. And uh, as someone who's written an awful lot of speeches over the years trying to define Republicans from Democrats, you've certainly heard the argument that the Republicans are a bunch of fat cats and they don't bear <laughs> their fair share and all the things that Joe Biden re- repeated and regurgitated over and over again during his speech uh, this past week. As you look at, at people defining those issues you know, in a political campaign, because Republicans and Democrats, they both have been trying to define what's rich and, and what's fair, I mean, for, for decades now. How do you come down on who's winning the battle for the hearts and minds in the debate between Republicans and Democrats over these definitions? Well, Bruce, it's great to be with you uh, and also your two guests. And you're right, having written an awful lot of speeches, probably too many. <laughs> but uh, it's a malady that I'm trying to cure myself of. Um, I think of, of, of a movie I saw a couple weeks ago on television from 1956, and it was about World War II. And it was about how uh, the Allies in uh, 1943 had used an imposter, a ploy, if you would, to convince the Germans that the Allied invasion of the Mediterranean would be from Greece and not Sicily. Germans bought it, and the... the uh, invasion was from Sicily. And I think of Joe Biden and the speech I looked at as a former uh, presidential speechwriter, but also as someone who uh, has been a political junkie ever since I was young. And tax and spend is is uh, uh, one or two of the greatest uh, issues, obviously, in any, uh, any voter uh, uh, confronts. Uh, crime, judiciary, tax and spend, illegal immigration, critical race theory, uh, religion, the place of same in, in public life. Mm-hmm. And in each of these last year, Joe Biden presented himself as a centrist, a moderate, a unifier, someone who, who would unite, not divide. In fact, in, in January's inaugural address, he used the word unity or a derivative of the same more than a dozen times. And yet, if you look at the record, uh, here we are eight or nine months after the inaugural, there is not one issue not one field in which Joe Biden has campaigned in a, in a manner different than he has governed. He has governed as a incited liberal. His staff is almost exclusively liberal. And uh, the language that he has used increasingly, particularly in the last several weeks, talking about how uh, Americans need to get with it, how Americans uh, who don't get vaccinated are inflicting pain, I've had two vaccination shots, but I do believe in freedom of speech and expression and decision as well. And this is not the Joe Biden who, uh, who campaigned for the presidency. And I think it's fair to say that when you attack nearly half the uh, country in terms of its position on, on vaccination or any other of these many issues, uh, you're not united and you're not, you're divided. And attacking people is almost unpatriotic doing uh, ill under your fellow citizens 
using a term like Neanderthal to, uh, to uh, express your view of the Republican Congress, this is not the man who was. This is the man who never was. It is not what America bargained for last year. I thought his speech uh, this week was more of the same. In fact, uh, uh, when you talk about three and a half billion or one bill, uh, one point two billion, four and a half billion, five trillion, rather, we simply don't know. It's tr it's T with a capital T as uh, and River City trouble. Right. And I think <laughs> that that he runs increasingly the risk of marginalizing himself marginalizing the Democratic Party looking ahead to next year. Kurt, Again, let me, let me this is the man who never was. Let me interrupt you for a moment. We do have a card-carrying Democrat here. Uh, he is happy <laughs> so that, Donald, that Donald Trump is not the president. Speaking and of I, attacking I, and, I, and I don't know, I don't know whether uh, Joe Biden was his first choice or 10th choice. If he wants to share that with us, he can. But uh, certainly, uh, Kurt Smith has put out some fighting words for Democrats. So your response to what uh, Mr. Smith said. That's true. And Kurt, I'm sorry to hear you think that. I think between the massive pandemic response in the spring, the $2 trillion of spending uh, that has gotten us through to this point, between the bipartisan, the, the fully supported withdrawal from Afghanistan and the winding down of that war, which despite the tactics has been an overwhelming uh, supportive topic among Americans and to passing a $1.5 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill that I hope will, will pass through the, the, the House now that it's come through the Senate with, by the way, 67 uh, senators. So that's 17 Republicans for those counting at home. Uh, this is a truly bipartisan approach to some pretty unprecedented times. Kurt? Well, they were unprecedented last year as well, and yet the spending was at least kept under uh, under sane boundaries. But it's 17 Republicans, they're all moderate to liberal. They're uh, often known as rhinos, Republicans in name only. They mm -hmm. don't represent the broad swath of, uh, of Republican mm -hmm. view or conservative to moderate view in my in my uh, in my uh, interpretation. But yes, I support infrastructure, but a lot of this America. is social engineering under the name of, uh, of infrastructure. And so much of the three and a half trillion or four and a half trillion dollar uh, grand uh, democratic package is nothing more than social engineering as well. Do you call and Medicare so I do think that, that uh, in time, Kurt? if not already, uh, they're going to pay a price for this. Kurt, uh, I want to get to Stephanie in a moment, but I want uh, there was a follow-up question that uh, that Patrick had. Go ahead, Patrick, yeah, and then I want to hear from Stephanie. Kurt, I'd say a, a big part of the $3.5 trillion goes to Medicare extension and to long-term uh, medical care for elderly folks. Would, would you call those social engineering? No, I wouldn't. Okay. And if you, if you just had those items exclusively under this uh, under this bill, it would run a lot less than $3.5 trillion dollars or four and a half trillion. There's a lot of budget gimmicks over the next five to 10 years. What I find particularly worrisome is that these are entitlements, not simply those two, which are worthwhile mm -hmm. and command great respect among the American people, mm -hmm. but many other entitlements, particularly in terms of the climate, climate change. Every, every, every problem on the face of the earth apparently is a climate change problem. That's not true. It's demonstrably not true. And rather than, than fight that uh, battle with Republicans, they've tried, again, under the cloak of night, to put a lot of these uh, items, these goodies, if you would, in, 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 in uh, a, 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 a package, which I think will bust the budget, not simply now, but even more so in years to come. 
The Wall Street Journal, one of the few honest newspapers in the United States, and by honest, I mean objective, uh, run, has run a series of, of editorials pointing out specifically the, uh, the areas of contention here and where Democrats, in essence, are trying to very cynically uh, shepherd and get and items passed they could never get passed on their own. Stephanie, I want to ask you a question which which sort of moves us to the next discussion. And by the way, I should mention that in the second hour tonight, we're going to be joined by Bill Schneider, a uh, longtime political uh, observer of the scene from Washington, D.C., uh, writing for The Hill, used to be with CNN. And uh, he will present, I think, probably a different perspective on some things that uh, uh, have been said in the last 20 minutes by Kurt Smith. But a, a, a question about the future of the party and where the party goes. Mm-hmm. When we met, Stephanie, a, a long, long time ago, Maybe, you were you you were a strong John McCain supporter. You were a delegate for well, John McCain. I was a McCain. delegate. You were a I delegate. Was a delegate. No, okay, yeah. you were a delegate. Now, how have you changed, and how has your party changed from being a very strong John McCain fan to someone that's emerged over the years as a strong Donald Trump fan? How did that change take place personally and within the party? I will, I will first address the personal change, and that sure. is um, I didn't really know I was a conservative right away. Um, and, you know, I, I was probably more of a, a, a typical Republican in the idea of limited government, lower taxes, those kinds of ideas, you know, strong military defense, you know, mm-hmm. some very typical um, Republican positions. And it was really, I would say, because of John McCain, I became more conservative in, well, I was always a social conservative. I'm, I'm, I will, pro-life. I've always been a pro-life person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that for me has, was, for the most part of my own thing, the defining reason why I was a Republican. Mm-hmm. But as I, as the years have gone by, and I, I think this goes into why I think the Republican Party has changed, is I don't believe that it used to be the Republicans represented, say, country club Republicans or these you know, rich the latest, economic yeah. issues. Mm-hmm. I will tell you this. In the last, probably since, clearly since Obama, after he beat McCain, I think we started to see a huge shift, maybe since Romney, in the nature of the party. I, when we were talking about, you know, the rich people the, of, of the Republican Party, mm-hmm. I don't see the Republican Party as the party of the rich anymore. I see mm-hmm. it as the party of the working class. And that's one thing that Donald Trump has brought out. I wouldn't say he created, but he has made it very clear that there is a swath of people in the middle that have been neglected by the Democrats, mm-hmm. and but who, for conservative, for social reasons or for frustration reasons, have aligned themselves with the Republican Party. And the Republicans played them like a fiddle. And they may or may not have, it depends on which Republican. There are the rhino Republicans who take, who I would consider John McCain that, and I think there are some true Republicans there who understand the working class issues that the Democrat Party does not address anymore. The Democrat Party doesn't take care of the middle of America. When we come back, I want to have a discussion of 
who are the moderates in each party that are out there because we have to define that Moder- yeah, and we'll start and we'll start with we'll start with the Republican party you brought them up and Kurt I know you've got a great knowledge of the Republican party because your your yeah. your politics probably have have emerged as well and we'll do that when we continue tonight on beyond the beltway One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Bruce Dumont, we continue back, and uh, we're going to take a moment and let everybody introduce themselves, starting with you, Stephanie Hitt. Give us 15 I'm seconds Stephanie on Hitt. your I background. am a conservative commentator and activist, mother of four, um, and uh, my latest venture has been organizing um, concerned parents on the issues of critical race theory, so entrenched in the culture wars in uh, politics go. right now. All right. 
Patrick Hanley. My name is Patrick Hanley. I live in Winnetka, Illinois. I'm an Illinois native, management consultant by training, uh, and now working with Illinois small businesses. Lifelong Democrat, always a Democrat? No, I was a, I was a Republican in high school. You were, and you, what intrigued, what, what, (laughs) what intrigued you about a Republican? Who was the Republican that intrigued you? No, it was really my parents more than anything else. I grew up in a Republican household at a time when the suburbs were much more 50-50, a bit more conservative. Okay. And uh, Kirk Smith, we could do a half hour on just your introduction, but give us the, uh, give us the short version, if you will, on, on your distinguished career. Well, thank you. I was uh, brought up in a small town in upstate New York and um, former speechwriter for, uh, for uh, President Bush, the first Bush, not the second, in the White House, and also in the Reagan administration for several uh, cabinet members, written a number of books on baseball. Uh, I'm now uh, a senior lecturer of English at the University of Rochester, teaching, as Casey Stendley used to say, the youth of America, enjoying it immensely. And uh, uh, I have always been a Republican by inheritance, but uh, I've grown increasingly conservative mm-hmm. as the GOP has betrayed its voters, has thrown away elections. And uh, Patrick is right when he says that the Republican Party has played voters like a fiddle. But that's true of both parties in terms of middle America. And uh, as someone from middle America, I find that uh, uh, a state of affairs in a democracy which is intolerable, to say the least. Do you, in looking ahead to 2024, assuming that, that Donald, health, Donald Trump's health continues to, to look good, um, is, is the defining moment of that campaign going to be whether people want Donald Trump to lead their party for the next four years or someone else has been able to emerge talking like Donald Trump mm-hmm. but not being Donald Trump? Is that the, is that the crux of... of the campaign in three years yeah. from now? I think that delineates it quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look back, I'm like Stephanie, I look back at uh, some of the things I said about Donald Trump five to 10 years ago, and I can't believe it's the same person speaking, meaning right. myself. Um, <laughs> but I changed in terms of him because uh, he spoke for the average uh, American uh, across the board, it seems to me, economically, uh, socially, culturally, and uh, militarily. And uh, uh, I couldn't help but look at the facts. And the facts were that in terms of the record, Donald Trump was a, uh, a, a, uh, an exceedingly successful, in some ways almost spectacular president in foreign policy, in the economy, the greatest economy before the pandemic that we've ever had, the judiciary record number of judges, on and on. And he had this great distinction, and I think this makes him singular among all the presidents in my lifetime. There is not one campaign pledge that he betrayed. The Republican Party, you name it, whether it be uh, Mitt Romney or any of the other clones of uh, of one another. Uh, In Richard Nixon's term, there's nothing smaller than a big businessman. And the GOP, the embodiment was Romney. And certainly they were betokened big business. Trump wasn't like that at all. Um, He impressed upon me in terms of his campaign that here was a man who understood people from the silent majority, the middle America. And uh, he did nothing in terms of the record to, uh, to Kurt, make me Kurt, change I have to, mind. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, Kurt, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, just a minute, I've got to interrupt because uh, I'm almost going to have to put a little three-in-one oil <laughs> in Patrick 
heads, yeah. Patrick Hanley's head, because he's going back and forth disagreeing with everything you yeah. say with a smile on his face. Yeah. So I'm pick, going this way. Pick off a couple of uh, points uh, that yeah. you want to challenge Kurt on. Uh, Kurt, Patrick. first of all, I mean, the, 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 the so-called Tax Cut and Jobs Act was a massive giveaway to the very wealthy in this country, exacerbating pretty unprecedented income inequality, making all of our problems worse. I think the, the way that Donald Trump approached climate uh, was a spectacular failure and a reversal in a lot of ways, uh, maintaining industries that were already uncompetitive, but keeping them around just for the sake of politics. And speaking of broken promises, where is the border wall that was going to be paid oh. for by the Mexican government? Well, Joe Biden took that down. Well, the so. border wall was never <laughs> the border yeah, wall. He tried against against business. He tried against the Democratic Party. He, he tried against the business interests of the Republican government. Nothing like that happened. And looking at Trump now, it's uh, it's almost nirvana in terms of the state of illegal immigration versus Joe Biden's catastrophe today. Stephanie. Well, you were nodding the other way. I was nodding the way, and I'll, I'll just cycle, uh, circle back a little bit, and that is one of the things, and you know, I sat here with Bruce. How many times did I say he's my 17th choice, yeah, Donald times. Trump? Yep. And, but one of the things, and I, I saw this with McCain, definitely with Romney, and that is that what I, Donald Trump was sort of unapologetic, and there was a sort of, Freshness, so and it, frankness. Oh, so, okay, about so right, I don't want to. I don't want to, really I, don't, I don't want to spend too much time looking yeah. in the rearview mirror. So I'm, let me go to okay, you. Okay, well right here, well here's right my. Now, I mean, is Donald, he your guy? Are you yes. going? Are you endorsing him Is he my guy? No. Right here are the policies. The, po- the there will still be the same policies, mm-hmm. and that is strengthening the military, focusing on conservative judges, making Whose sure. Whose name that is on the ballot, Stephanie? Ron DeSantis. That's who it's going to be. That's, that's who you wanted to be. That's who I want to be. I'm ready to go all in because there are he's 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 unapologetic about what he believes in. Would you rather I'm asking our Democrat here because yeah. you were smiling. OK, yeah. sure. uh, you had the look of glee in your eye thinking that you and the Democrats could wage another campaign against Donald Trump. Does Donald sure. Trump worry you? No. I mean, the fact that the Democrats wanted to make sure that he could never run again was indicative to many people that they were scared as hell of him. Donald what Trump worries me because he rolled back Democratic institutions because he tried to steal an election and he, stri- he tried to stay in power. He literally was informing his military generals uh, uh, that of was what to do. So the American I mean, people are, you think, you believe the American people are, are well yes. advised of that, of that fact in yes. your view yes. that uh, he would be easy to beat. I do think so, yes, especially in three years. Yes. Kurt Smith, your response to uh, where you think uh, well, I, I Trump hope love that, will be in three years. Yeah. I hope, I hope the Democrats maintain this, uh, this steadfast uh, uh, opposition to all of the tenets of Trumpism, because a ticket that can win in 2024 is Trumpism without Trump. Had Donald Trump behaved himself is that DeSantis? Uh, and not tweeted, if he'd thrown throwing the tweet machine in the Potomac his first week in office, he would have been elected handsome against any Democrat. But he didn't show But Kurt, he didn't do it. He didn't he did not do it. Kurt, he did not Kurt, he did not do that. So like again, looking in the rearview mirror and, and looking realistically and looking in the future, 
uh, when you say Trump or Trumpism without Trump, do you put the name mm-hmm. DeSantis right. next to it as as our uh, as our guest suggested? As Stephanie suggested. Well, I like what I see, but I also know that he doesn't have a minute of foreign policy experience. Of course, that didn't stop Barack Obama, but then he's a Democrat, and this is a Republican we're talking about, and there's a double standard, as we all know. Um, My candidate originally in uh, in 2012, uh, and also for a time in 2016, was Marco Rubio, Mm -hmm. and I haven't changed with that. Um, He seems to me to, to, I don't believe in in uh, box checking in terms of identity politics. I like the way he speaks. He's a fluent speaker. He has an immigrant story to tell and he tells it well. He's moderate to conservative on any issue really that you can think of, domestic Mm -hmm. or foreign. He has great foreign policy credentials, Mm -hmm. uh, extraordinarily good at describing that. But he doesn't excite the Trumpsters. Foreign policy is gonna play a major role. He doesn't doesn't have executive experience. One of the things that I think people liked about Donald Trump, and that was, he did, he wasn't a politician. He did, you know, he, you okay? He was a he, pretend businessman. He's political, but the point is, people like the idea of people who've actually done something. I agree. Well, and one of the things, and I think this is going to hurt anyone who's a senator, anyone mm-hmm. who's a career politician. Mm-hmm. They get up there, they talk, they they tell their stories, but what have they actually done? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think it, we're going to see something emerge from one of these from one of these great governors. Uh, I, I'm leaning towards Ron DeSantis, and they, they've handled crises. They've handled pandemics. They've handled natural disasters. They handle, you know, migrant crises. They, in a, on a mini scale, they've handled all of the problems they've they would. They've got to win primaries, though. They they've do have to, to win. They've got to win a primary. And I'm just saying, as, as you look at the totality of the Republican primary field and the, and the, and the oh. calendar and the schedule, I mean, where, where does Donald Trump, uh, where does he get stopped? Where There's, where does yeah. this where does the strength of the masses? And by the way, I do believe that the people, the Republicans who right. didn't vote for Donald Trump, right, they are responsible for Joe Biden. They are responsible for the screw right. up in Afghanistan. Yes. Okay, yeah. they have, they have a lot of yeah. poo poo on their hands. Yeah, anyone okay? who yes, mm. we agree. But one of the things about DeSantis, you'll hear these stories like at the you know at the CPAC and so on when they do these private um, polls. People like DeSantis are emerging. They're, um, I think okay. one of the things about DeSantis, and I know this sounds kind of superficial, but he he speaks the language that the left, he can speak he's the language than, of the left. And he's younger than you. He's, he, yeah. <laughs> he can speak the language of the left and in a way that Donald Trump didn't. Now, I loved his frankness and the way he called things out and his humor. But DeSantis has okay. that that okay. nuance. I'm afraid I still don't understand it. I think it's really clear that you're for DeSantis. I think that's come <laughs> true in our discussion this evening. Call me, Ron. I'm Call Bruce Ron. Dumont, 1-800-723-8289. More conversation when we roll on from Chicago. Thank you.
Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the voices for recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hurd-Garris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org slash caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont back in Elk Grove Village. You're listening to Beyond the Beltway from coast to coast and border to border around the world at beyondthebeltway.com. And John is listening to us tonight in McHenry, Illinois. Go ahead, John. You're on Beyond the Beltway. Yes, uh, I wanted to respond to Mr. Hanley as he discussed the uh, income inequality and the reason being the yes. uh, decline of organized labor. And I have to respectfully disagree mm-hmm. um, because over the last 40 years, you've had organized labor shift away from their core mission of mm-hmm. collective bargaining and contract administration and get to political activism in general mm-hmm. and frankly, leftist political activism in particular. 
And I point this out because the, the original Reagan Democrats, much of them were rank-and-file union people who could not vote with the Democrats and vote for Carter in 1980. Mm-hmm. And that trend continued here. And as far as bipartisan and the Biden administration, you know, something the, uh, Biden's been pressing is the Protecting the Right to Organize Act or PRO Act. And Mr. Hanley claimed his bipartisan support for Biden. Well, there's not even a hundred. The Democrats aren't even in agreement on that in the Senate. There are three Democrats that are holding it up. Um, mm-hmm. Senator Warner in Virginia and the two Arizona senators and all the the attacks against freedom of individual workers. I mean, they're going after the right to work states. Mm-hmm. Um, you meant Joe, you meant Joe Manchin in West, in West Virginia. So, you meant Joe Manchin. Um, in no, West Man- Virginia. Man- Manchin is Manchin yes, is right. co-sponsoring the PRO Act. Yeah, but not not two from um, Arizona, I don't believe. No, the two from Arizona are not co-sponsoring the PRO Act. Schumer said back in March that he needs to have 50 co-sponsors before he'll move it. It's mm-hmm. been at 47 since late April. Manchin mm-hmm. was the last one to co-sponsor it. And I guess where I'm going is the Democrats are trying to sell a false narrative that there's all this so-called bipartisan support. They say, well, if the polls say it's bipartisan, I'm going to call it bipartisan. That's That's a false narrative at best and a lie at worst and i just want to dispute where there's this overwhelming support for biden's agenda there is not why do you have to go to a reconciliation and the thing about the pro act that goes after the 1099 workers that goes after the freelancers the artists the um the gig economy uh workers and that's not going after the rich that's going after the middle class and you're going to see what happened in california when they tried it if that goes nationwide in the PRO Act. So I'm going to listen to Mr. Hanley yeah. if the other two want to jump in. And I just, I hear this false narrative that there's all this bipartisan support for Biden. Mm-hmm. I don't see it. And, and organized labor, well, if, the pro, if that was true, the PRO Act would have been signed into law by now. That's part of the American job plan. So I'll listen to Mr. Hanley and the Patrick, rest. Patrick, go ahead. Hey, John, I appreciate you calling in. And I hear what you're saying. On the PRO Act, the way that that gets to income inequality is when you regulate and restrict the way that we do 1099s, you prevent owners of companies from misusing and abusing employees like that. You know, I've been a 1099 before, and I've worked 50 hours a week. And that's actually, (laughs) that should be illegal. Uh, Working more than 40 hours a week, I should have been afforded benefits, right? I should have been afforded uh, uh, overtime pay, health care, that sort of thing. But when you get into these 1099 situations, companies are able to exploit folks. To, to your point on organized labor, I, I hear you. I, I One of the reasons for the decline in organized labor could well have been the politicization of the movement in the 70s and 80s. But what I do think we do see from the economic data, from the evidence, is that when there is less organizing going on, wages stagnate, right? Wages don't rise with productivity the way that they're supposed to because there's nobody on the other side of the bargaining table that's having that conversation. It's owners dictating what they pay, and as owners make huge profits, especially in the 90s and 2000s, that money is not trickling down. I mean, how much money have the 10 richest Americans made just during this pandemic? It would blow your mind. Hundreds of billions of dollars. John, we're going to move on to Joy listening to us in Spokane, Washington. Go ahead, Joy. Are you there? Joy in Spokane on KXLY Radio. Joy, are you there? Joy is just pretending that she's there. She is uh, gone. Um, back to you, uh, Stephanie. I want to. I want to talk about. Uh, you keep talking about Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Uh, do you basically dismiss all the other possible people that would be running? I mean, so many have already yes. said they wouldn't run if Donald Trump 
ran. It's, everybody mm -hmm. seems to be fearful of him. Yes, I do. I don't think that there's anyone with the executive experience. I don't think there's anyone with the ability to take on the opposition um, the way that um, DeSantis can. And I, I think he's got all the right instincts, which is really important. I see that lacking in some of these other Republican governors. And, uh, and Kurt, he's got, you know, he's got a, a wealth of experience. Kurt, a, qu a quick question to you is, how important is Republicans winning in 2022 to the Donald Trump decision in 2024? If the Republicans, for some reason, would not regain control of the House and or Senate, uh, right. does it pretty much uh, mean curtains for Donald Trump in 24? Well, I think I think the Democrats certainly will play the Trump card as long as they can. <laughs> they have very little else on their agenda that's very popular. Uh, Biden's agenda, if you look at, at the Gallup poll, has fallen through the, uh, the floor on virtually every plank. I think in terms of Trump running, who knows? I mean, you're asking me to, uh, to read Donald Trump's mind, and that is something I can't do or <laughs> wish to do. But I do think that Republicans are going to be guided in 2014 by one thing. Can this candidate win? And I think the answer with Trump, sadly, is no. That's my own view right now. Mm -hmm. I think there are several Republicans that can. I think that DeSantos might. The jury is still out. I think that Rubio could, along with uh, Rubio at the top of the ticket, Marsha Blackburn as his vice president, would be a dynamite ticket. Uh, fluent, articulate, moderate to conservative. The Democrats would find it very difficult to, uh, to mount a, an aggressive campaign against that tandem. Mm -hmm. So I think you know, Republicans will look at the, uh, at the polling data, they will see how, how the early primaries sort out, but they don't want to lose again. Uh, we've seen the damage that can be done when a Democrat, particularly the, a liberal Democrat, won't the media, and a liberal Congress, won't, won't the media, told. Kurt, won't the media be cheering for Donald Trump to run again? Oh, Isn't that yes. the good story? Oh, question. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that doesn't that doesn't bother me in the least. Uh, no. You know, the media should be taken on. Uh, in terms of their uh, abject bias. He would, but he would do uh, it. could Trump do it convincingly? No, I don't believe so in terms of the broader American public. Kurt Smith, we are out of time. Kurt Smith, he is a professor of English at the University of Rochester, also one of the world's foremost authorities on sports broadcasting. We'll have you back before the World Series starts, Kurt. Thanks very much for joining us. Also, a uh, longtime speechwriter for President Bush. I'm Bruce Dumont. Another hour with Bill Schneider coming up next. One forty five over ninety two. One eighty over one eleven. One hundred and eighty two over a hundred. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, 
but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back on hour number two of Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Patrick Hanley is our Democrat. He is in studio with me this evening. And Stephanie Hitt joins us. She is our card-carrying Republican. And joining us for this hour of the broadcast is one of the country's leading uh, political writers, uh, William Schneider, who for many years was with CNN. He now is a writer for The Hill. And also he's author of numerous books. And the most recent one is A Standoff, How America became ungovernable and he is a professor emeritus from george mason university and bill it's nice to have you with us back on beyond the beltway thank you good to be here bruce i'd like to begin by picking up uh, the discussion from hour number one we were talking a little bit about 2022 and 2024 and i know that uh, your your recent article in the hill deals with uh, how the democrats and republicans are going to be jockeying for position to see who has the upper hand uh, come uh, november of 2022 uh, at this moment in time uh, and i realize it can change from day to day if you were to be handicapping who is most likely to have the momentum on election day, who would it be? The Republicans. Midterm elections are almost always good for the party outside of the White House. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, the White House is controlled by the Democrats, President Biden, and the Republicans stand a very good chance of taking over both houses of Congress. They only need to gain one Senate seat and I think five House seats to gain control of both houses of Congress. And the prospects are pretty good. The average for the uh, party that's out of the White House in the last 10 midterm elections has been much bigger than that, about 25 House seats and about three Senate seats. 
So it doesn't look unlikely that Republicans will gain control of both houses of Congress simply based on the record. Now, you have said that uh, insofar as uh, n national issues, uh, that the, the majority of people may favor the Democratic position on national issues, but that individual state governors are taking positions which are anathema to uh, uh, Joe Biden. And because of that, uh, there is almost a bi you know, bipolar nature of, of where uh, the voter might be. They might, they might favor the Democrats on, on let's say, on, on some economic issues, whereas maybe they agree with a Republican governor on, uh, on the mandates and, and, and some of those issues and how they're dealing uh, with, with COVID. Uh, do you see that as the, as the principal uh, sort of issues to be watching? I mean, I, I looked at the, at the video the other day that came in on Fox from these, you know, tens of over 10,000 people coming across the southern border at Del Rio, Texas. And I said to myself, oh, my God, the, the, here's, here's video that's just writing commercials for Republicans to take back Congress. That's right. Uh, and uh, the, the, the surge of the, they're really refugees, not migrants. They're mostly mm -hmm. Haitian refugees. That could be a big problem. President Biden is sending them uh, back to Haiti. Mm -hmm. And that is making progressive Democrats very angry. Mm -hmm. uh, it could work to his advantage in the midterm election. We just don't know. Uh, but it's certainly not a good sign. Uh, for Republicans, the midterm election is supposed to be, and usually is, a referendum on the president. And they hope a negative referendum on the president. It usually is. The only two midterms where the president's party has picked up seats were exceptional circumstances. Mm -hmm. In 1998, just before Bill Clinton was impeached by the House of Representatives. And in 2002, shortly after the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon in, uh, on September 11th, those were exceptional circumstances. And in both cases, the president's party made gains. Well, Republicans are hoping this will be a negative referendum on President Biden. But President Biden, uh, I believe, I'm sure, and many state governors like Governor Newsom in California have plans to make it a different referendum, mm -hmm. a referendum on Republican extremism mm -hmm. in the states, because Republicans in places like Georgia, Texas, South Dakota are passing laws on abortion, on voter registration uh, and on uh, the pandemic that are very unpopular. I want to ask our in-studio Democrat, Patrick Hanley. Uh, Patrick, when when you saw the video at the border the other mm -hmm. day at, at Del Rio, Texas, did you think, as I did, boy, this this is horrible video for the Biden administration, and and that it was going to start a a battle between the progressives in the party that are saying, you know, don't send these people back, mm -hmm. and and obviously the average American who may, may may not be real political, but they see something like that and they say, why the hell are we letting 11,000 people into our country and we're not vaccinating them? Mm. Uh, my first instinct, to be honest with you, is is empathy and sympathy for the folks at the border. I mean, this is an incredibly difficult situation that they're in. In the week that followed, we've deported about three, 4,000 of them, more to come. Did that we've, surprise you? 
it surprised me. You know, uh, Joe Biden has always been a centrist guy. Like, he's always played down the middle of the road, especially on immigration issues. We'll all remember Barack Obama's immigration plan way back in the day, which was basically uh, to provide amnesty for the folks that are here, a path to citizenship, uh, as well as stronger border enforcement. I mean, Obama was slandered by the left as deporter-in-chief. So, no, it, it wasn't a huge surprise. To, to Bill's points earlier, I do think we are an, ex an exceptional time, excuse me, uh, and as we come out of the, the coronavirus pandemic with any luck at all over the next six months with a stronger economy, with a country that has passed through the worst pandemic in 100 years, with some elements of the Build Back Better agenda, which are some pretty unprecedented levels of spending in parts of the economy that desperately need it, we could have a very strong, popular president heading into the midterm. Uh, Stephanie, a question to you. When you heard or read that uh, the Biden administration was taking uh, many of the uh, people who were coming in from Haiti and putting them on a plane and sending them back, right. uh, does the president get credit for that? Well, because, you know, that, because that's not no, what the progressives like, in the party wanted to I do. I feel like it raises a lot more questions, and that is, where are you sending them back to, first to of Haiti. all? Haiti. Well, how is this going? But they're not all from Haiti. That's, I think, part the of the problem. Of right. Is that the, there's this knee-jerk, we're watching mostly. a knee-jerk reaction to a problem that should should never have been created in the first place. And I think that's what Americans see when they see that. But I'm wondering, can, can, can a Republican... Who, who hates the idea of people sneaking into the country, right. can you acknowledge that in this particular case, and by the way, I hate that concept as well, yeah. can you acknowledge that if you have a president who at this particular time understands that he's going to take some heat from his progressive right. base by, by taking these people, putting them on a plane, and sending them back, yeah. I mean, I, I was advocating that eight or nine years ago, the first time I ever went to the border. Yeah. But doesn't Joe Biden get some applause for no, doing that? No, because he's only responding to, to reality, to what a reality that he created. And it's, you know, and, and that is he by created? opening the border. So how, did, how, did he create, how did he create that in your view? Well, I mean, he created these this open border policy that's having people come by There's tens no open of thousands. Policy. Um, that's you simply know, not true. What is and the open border policy? The, the, the southern border is wide open. Come on it's in. It's not. It's not. It All is. of these refugees have been processed by, by hundreds not. of folks. Uh, working for the Customs and Border Patrol, who've been processing these folks all day, every day for weeks now. If anything, I compare this to the Afghanistan situation where Joe Biden has faced a strategic mistake, a strategic problem created by world circumstances, and frankly, after the first hit, has dealt with them very well. All right. When we come back, I want to pick up on that, Bill. You have some follow-up questions for Stephanie and the rest of our panel this evening. 1-800-723-8029. We've got callers on the line, I promise, to engage you when we come back on Beyond the Beltway. Thanks for joining us tonight. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? 
Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Mr. Beck and uh, Bill Schneider, you were trying to interrupt and ask a few questions to Stephanie Hitt. So we go back to you for your questions or uh, further comments on this issue. The question was very simple. What is this open border policy she was talking about? I don't know of any open border policy except the closest is for Afghan refugees who supported the United States during the recent war. We're admitting a lot of them, and I am astonished at how welcoming Americans have been to the Afghan refugees coming to the United States. Well, I think what the, the open border policy that I'm talking about is the one that's very obvious on our southern border right now, coming in through Texas and New Mexico and so on. And that is, you know, thousands on a daily basis coming up through Mexico, whether how they get to Central America and Mexico. But, I mean, we are we are processing people at that border from all sorts of, all kinds of countries uh, all over Africa, for example. But let's, but let's, Ghanaian, let's, let's, and, let's back up. I I mean, I wanna, people I wanna, know Stephanie, to get to Mexico Stephanie, to come I wanna, in. I want to I back up this track right now, because in the last segment we did talk about, uh, we talked about the Haitians, okay? Right, And that's right. been in the and news lately, okay? Yeah. All right, you don't you don't walk from Haiti uh, to Central America. So my question yeah. is, how do you how do they get <laughs> Many there? Many of these people have come from Haiti to 
different places like Guatemala and so Brazil. on, and they're making their way up to the southern border. As but you're saying, you're saying, uh, Patrick, you're saying that there was there was an, a policy mm-hmm. that would, that the Haitians were aware of that they were going to be treated as refugees if they made that yes. trek and came right. to the United States. Mm-hmm. Right, right. What, what I understand to be the case is that following... So if, the, if that's true, Bill, I hear you saying that, that that is true as well. Shouldn't there have been some time between the moment they landed, wherever they landed in, 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 in Central America, mm-hmm. to the moment that they got to the border, mm-hmm. that we don't have the video of 11,000 people walking across the Rio Grande River, which was the f- video from last week. Right. Shouldn't at some point there should have been some interception in Mexico mm-hmm. where U.S. And, and Mexican authorities were, were processing these people, providing them with, with COVID shots, because, again, uh, uh, Haiti has one of the lowest uh, rates of, of vaccination in the world. I mean, it seems to me that no one should have been surprised with 11,000 people showing up at that border. Yeah, I hear you. Listen, I don't know. I believe they're under a bridge right now. Yeah. Well, yeah. They, they are. Are. under a bridge. Bill, do you have, Bill, do you, I mean, do you have, I mean, in the people that you talk with, I mean, when when you're talking to a member of Congress, regardless of their party, do they do they ask aloud the question like I just asked? There had to be days of preparation that the government could have taken yeah. to not be surprised by eleven thousand people knocking at your southern so border. So why didn't that happen? Uh, why well, are I want I want I want to hear sort of think practically like that. Biden administration well, clearly reacted word. to it. Go ahead. Smugglers. Smugglers. Most of the people coming to the United States through the southern border are transported by smugglers yeah. who know mm-hmm. how to get around the, and sometimes bribe the American authorities. It's a shocking situation. But smugglers are paid a lot of money, often by entire villages in Central America, to smuggle people into the United States. I've been to the border, as you say you have, and I've seen the operations they have telescopes across the Rio Grande where they keep track of the people that they're smuggling into the United States. Smuggling is the major source of this problem. If you're and obviously it <laughs> bubbles up every once in a while. I mean, it, it clearly it was the issue that I think drove Donald Trump to the White House, or certainly mm. propelled him to the mm-hmm. White House, and and yet. Uh, the average person on the street, they pull their hair out when they ask this basic question that, that I just asked. And they come back, well, well, why don't we put more troops on our southern border? Why, why don't we take yeah. the troops that are coming home from Afghanistan yes. and why don't we put them in Del Rio, Texas? Yeah. And what's the answer to that question? Well, that is <laughs> I don't it's think the we tolerance want to militarize of who, the border. whatever parties in power. Now, did you, you don't want to militarize the border. Are right. we, Bill, are we prohibited under the Posse Comitatus? Are we prohibited from militizing the, militizing, militizing, militarizing the border? Militarizing. Militarizing. <laughs> I'll say I think there times. are laws. I'm not sure what the laws are, but I think right. there are laws about sending troops for that kind of a task, which is ordinarily done by the Border Patrol. Right. Uh, but I'm not, I can't cite the laws. No, no. I don't know them. Yeah. I'm not a lawyer. But what, 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 I'm, what I'm saying is that maybe that's a law that needs to be reviewed and repealed 
or certainly discussed because I can't believe I'm the only person that's thinking that there's a there's a missing se- uh, uh, position of of, of uh, common sense here that doesn't appear to 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 touch base. And, and By the way, speaking of touching base, we have people that have called. They're waiting a long time. Let's go to Ronaldo. He's listening to us tonight on KTSM in El Paso, Texas. Ah, go ahead, Ronaldo. You're on the air. Yes, my name is Ray. Uh, last, last week, uh, Biden was talking about uh, he's going to tell the bankers to audit the uh, people, yes. their customers, yep. of how much money goes in and comes out. So I'm saying, okay, that's good, but I hope does is it going to uh, go to the Democrats and Republicans too? Because that's where the swamp problem is in Washington. And then concerning the border, uh, we have to rule by law, not by sympathy. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Bruce. Okay, thank you for your call. Let's go to Robert, who's also listening tonight. He's in Sacramento, California, on KTKZ. Go ahead. Thank you for taking my call. And I agree with uh, what the previous caller just said. Yes, rule by law. I was just going to point out, as far as the, uh, I guess, this fiscal inequality that was being brought up at the last uh, Mm -hmm. session, Um, I'm on Wikipedia's page right now, the top 25 richest people in America, only two Republicans, and um, I would I, I appreciate the the person from the left wing, shall we say, who's uh, speaking of uh, um, of called sure. fiscal inequality, sure. might want to embrace that as well. No poor person has ever given me a job. Well, I've hey, earned every job I've taken, and no poor person has ever given me one. I'm an equal opportunity taxer. I'm very happy to take those uh, Democratic billionaires' dollars just oh. as much as the Republicans. If you want to talk a flat, a flat tax, great. I'm right there with you. Um, I'd be happy to discuss it with you. What about what about his broader point that uh, poor people don't hire anybody, Patrick? I, I think we've faced trickle-down economics in the 80s, and frankly, the data shows that it just doesn't work. When you give rich folks incentives to hire poor folks, they don't do it. They don't spend as much as they should, well, and they don't pay them as much as they're productive. That, so that, at the end of the day, what you have is this place it, where... Yeah, go ahead. It's such a misconception based on how economics really works, and that is this idea that somehow the rich people hoard their money as opposed to reinvesting, employing, educating, building, growing, growing their wealth, growing an industry. Bill Schneider, a question to you, uh, again, because you've gone through this uh, many times. Thank you very much for your caller. in, in in Washington, the the battle between the Republicans and the Democrats over what is rich uh, and who pays their fair share, uh, that's been debated for 50 years now. Is there any one party that seems to be having the upper hand in winning that battle for the hearts and minds of the American people? Because the Democrats are they got a lot of they got a lot of chips in that uh, in that bucket at the moment. Well, there's neither party that's winning that argument, and there's a good reason for it. Something very important has changed in American politics in the past 20 years, and that is that uh, there are an awful lot of upper middle class and even wealthy people, as the caller said earlier, who have become Democrats. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wealthy people are very often the Democrats' people. Uh, That's because of what I call the new rule in America. It, it has been true for about 100 years. The wealthier you are, the more likely you are to be a Republican. That's still true. But it's also true now, and this is new, 
that the better educated you are, the more likely you are to be a Democrat. Hmm. When I tell my students that, they say, what if you're wealthy and well-educated? And I point out, that's when you're called cross-pressured. You're pulled in different directions. If you're wealthy and well-educated, if you vote your economic interests, you're going to vote Republican, as they've been doing for many decades. But if you vote your cultural values, you're going to vote Democratic. And that's the key condition of American politics right now. A lot of Democrats are very nervous about taxing the rich because I've heard them say, well, the rich, they're our people. They vote Democratic. And what we saw last year in the election was that large numbers of affluent suburban voters abandoned the Republican Party of Donald Trump Mm -hmm. because they couldn't stand his values Mm -hmm. and went Democratic. That's been changing for a long time. Uh, is there anything is there anything that you have heard uh, said by Donald Trump since he has left the White House that you feel would make people rethink in 2022 as to who they would vote for a member of Congress from just those Republicans uh, who uh, rejected uh, Donald Trump? No, not really. I mean, he, he's complaining about Joe Biden all the time, yep. but he doesn't have to say those complaints. A lot of people are saying those complaints. How's he doing with independence, though? Is that, is that message still playing with independence? Well, Biden is losing support among independents. I don't think it has anything to do with Donald Trump. Okay. Uh, independents include a lot of young people who don't like Donald Trump, but Biden is really slipping among independents, and that's a real danger sign. At this moment in time, we got a long way to go before uh, 2024, let alone 2022. Uh, when we come back, I want to get your assessment because you've known uh, Joe Biden for 35, 40 years. I want to get your assessment as to how you think this presidency is is weighing on him personally as well as politically. I'm Bruce Dumont. Back shortly. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. <laughs> I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. 
probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Lamont back, and thanks very much for joining us. Stephanie Hitt is our Republican in studio. Patrick Hanley is our Democrat in studio. And our man in the middle is Bill Schneider, who is uh, the uh, professor emeritus now at George Mason University. Uh, he writes for The Hill, which is one of the major uh, inside political uh, rags, or uh, not rags, I guess, rag. Is that what you say, Bill? I meant rags in a, in a very affectionate way. In a trade way. kind of way. In a trade way. Trade. But, but, it's mostly but, online. And yeah. It's mostly <laughs> online, so you can't, you can't do anything with it. Uh, but again, he is also You author can't of, wrap your birdcage in. <laughs> <laughs> author of many books, including Standoff. How America Became Ungovernable. It's a great book. And again, uh, he is uh, a longtime friend of the show. I think you've been doing this program for well over 30 years. We first met during the primary of 1983 for mayor of the city of Chicago. And we spent a lot of great time going from uh, ward committeeman office to ward committeeman office on uh, on election night. So we go back a long way. Nice to have you back on the program, Bill. And again, the title of the book is Standoff, How America became ungovernable and it's available at amazon let's go to uh, pennsylvania right now western pennsylvania and uh, tom is listening to us tonight on wpic go ahead tom yeah bruce um i want to go back to the uh statement about the midterm elections number one i think that financial investors uh, disclosure needs to be put in place that uh past performance doesn't necessarily uh indicate future uh, results. Mm-hmm. Um, what would happen? And I'm, this is a bit of a curveball. I understand it. What would happen if? And, and but it has some grounding here because Nancy Pelosi brought the question of the Twenty Fifth Amendment, but she also said it didn't apply to Trump. She, she, that's not why she was asking. And uh, Biden gets in there, so you know, obviously they. She had some concerns. Um, also, there was an interview with Biden, and I heard an, uh, one time on one of the uh, conservative. Uh, national programs 
uh, where Biden was being interviewed, and he said, it was a question about his age. He said, well, you know, if, if, I, if there's a problem uh, and I'm not doing the job, I'll do the same thing I, I said to Barack. I'll find something and I'll just uh, step aside. Wouldn't it be in the Democrats' best interest if he doesn't come up in the polls? And then really, I think that there's an agenda here that is being successful. It's to make America mediocre again. Um, that is being uh, performed in the office right now. If we get into, say, March of next year, and Biden is at where he is now, or even lower, of getting him to step aside, resigning, saying to him, you know, look, Joe, you're going to either be impeached or we'll have to take you out by the 25th Amendment. And, and, and they're going to even go through his wife, you know, through that process. Um, and get him out of there. Uh, Harris becomes president. And then the, the new person that comes in as vice president, that see, again, they, they would then have still, the, the Democrats would still have control by uh, having control of the House of Representatives, and even though they wouldn't have a 50-50 vote in the, the Senate, they would have popular pressure put it on, well, let's back the new president, okay. let's get somebody in there that, uh, you know, she, she wants, that she's uh, well, designating let me, let me ju- Let me just interrupt you, okay? And I know you've spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking about this just to be able to articulate it and share it with everybody. I want to go back. To, I want to bring Bill Schneider in because this is, uh, this is in his uh, landscape, his backyard, uh, Washington, D.C. <laughs> and and I, want to, I want to sort of encapsulate the, the thought with, with something that you address in your current article in The Hill. And that is that uh, if the Republicans were to re, you know, regain control of the House, you said they would probably want to go to impeach Joe Biden. I guess my question is, why would they want to do that with two years to go if the person waiting in the wings would be Kamala Harris, who they may be more concerned about and worried about than Joe Biden with two years to go. <laughs> Bill? <laughs> the, the, the the Democratic Congress moved to impeach Donald Trump after he had lost re-election. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They impeached him. Well, I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my God. Impeachment is Nobody. an ordinary tool Nobody in partisan yeah. warfare today. It's like the filibuster. It's, it used to be extraordinary, but now it's it's just part of the part. It's a partisan weapon that's used all the time. So yeah, they've already talked about impeaching Biden. Uh, Lindsey Graham said he would move to impeach Biden for the way he handled the withdrawal from Afghanistan. He thought that was an impeachable offense. Mm-hmm. So yeah, impeachment is a is a is a weapon. Just about everything has been weaponized these days, and impeachment is one of them. Do you think that's a good idea, um, Stephanie, as a Republican? I, I don't, because I, you know, especially when you're a Republican who wants to, de- de- you know, defend, you know, like, it say impeachment is an extraordinary measure, then you mm. should act as, that way. But I want to kind of dial back, and the question is, Harris, you know, if you impeach Joe Biden, you get Kamala Harris. I know there With are Nancy poll- Pelosi is yeah, well, right. away. And so the, here's the question, and I'd be curious to hear what Bill thinks about this, is I believe the, the word on the street is that she is even more unpopular than he is. So the question is, um, why would anyone seek to... Um, I don't think the Republicans... I don't think they're strategic enough anyway to think that Okay, let's impeach Joe Biden. Let's create some turmoil between before the tw- midterms, and um, we'll have a really unpopular person, Kamala, to run against, 
as our 22 theme. Bill, let me. I want to. I want to ask you the question because that that was kind of a convoluted response too. But let me ask yeah. you this question: Do you agree with what Stephanie said that that she has heard that Kamala Harris is very unpopular amongst the uh, the political uh, society of of Washington? Is that true or not? It's not really true. I mean, she's not unpopular. She's not very popular. Uh, she's more or less like exactly like Joe Biden. She's his chosen vice president. Uh, her popularity is in the mid 40s. Biden's popularity is in the mid 40s. She is where Biden is. Every vice president is like that. The vice president is the shadow of the president. A question that we did not talk about in our number one very much, but I want to spend some time talking about it now, and that is the way that we've uh, uh, extricated ourselves from Afghanistan. Uh, again, you've spoken with Republicans and Democrats on both sides of the aisle, and they've all been somewhat critical. Uh, is is this uh, how how hurtful? is his handling of Afghanistan as a political issue. Is it is it one that people are still going to be talking about in 2022? You're asking me? Yeah. I, we don't know. <laughs> I mean, Afghanistan could be forgotten by 2022. Yeah. Uh, I remind you that from 2003 to 2011, um, we were in Afghanistan and the war just disappeared from the political mm -hmm. agenda. Yeah. It was mm -hmm. displaced by the war in Iraq. And in fact, after the war in Iraq finally ended, after all those years, people looked around and they said, wait a minute, what are we doing in Afghanistan? Nobody, very few people, remembered why we were there in the first place, mm -hmm. because it go, dated all the way back uh, to 9-11 in 2001. Uh, we don't know whether Afghanistan will remain an issue. We know that it was very damaging. I think the principal damage that it did to Biden was it really undermined his image of competence, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons mm -hmm. he got elected. Uh, he was seen as not, not handling that very competently at all, even though most Americans supported the idea of withdrawal from Afghanistan, mm -hmm. and they had long since given up on that war. They thought it was not worth fighting. Nevertheless, uh, they thought that the way we withdrew just revealed the president's lack of real competence. Can I, and, and go ahead, Patrick. Yeah, can I just ask a provocative question? I mean, sure. as we head into next summer, and if we forget the details of how things came about, but if COVID-19 is winding down after a brutal two years for the world and for the country, if we have ended the war in Afghanistan, and if Biden has either the bipartisan infrastructure package passed as an act or the $3.5 trillion of spending for the Build Back Better plan, don't you think that, that those are three pretty considerable successes that he can run on into 22 that could energize independence? You know, one of the things... If that turns out. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I, I think one of the things that people are <laughs> underestimating is not just the issue of competence, but credibility. And that really came under fire, especially as we see uh, Millie, for example, what happened with the drone strike and so mm -hmm. on. And as a, as a military member and someone whose family is very entrenched in the intelligence community, I will tell you this, and that is that um, there, is, there is no trust in the rank and file anymore in some of these decisions. Hmm. And people are seeing that the, 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 not just the incompetence, but, but the, the lack of credibility the, the, the also, willingness to lie. Wouldn't, wouldn't, for, you, wouldn't, wouldn't mm. you also say that the that's, general public 
may feel the same way about the brass, not just the rank yeah, and file. Exactly. Because we have a, we have a, you know, exactly we, the case. If regardless of, or I guess wherever your political yeah. support is, I mean, Joe Biden has said I you know, he followed the directions or the suggestions right. of his military. Now, there seems to be some debate over that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, again, uh, if if the military people really did say, OK, you know, you can give up Bagram and, and it'll be OK. I mean, I would like to know that. And I would right. hope that the hearings that are about to take place in the next couple of weeks, right. I hope they would get to that because I would like to know that answer. Was he freelancing? Right. Was this just w- one of his bad ideas, as, as right. Robert Gates said about uh, Joe Biden? Or, uh, you know, were there were there brass out there, including yeah. General Milley, saying, yeah, we can we can deal with this. Well, and I think I think what we're going to see is I think what we've seen um, and the dramatic results is there is it's not just about competence. It's about it's it's it's, it's there has been a there's a strong sense across the country that we have now seen proof that. Some of the institutions, some we have some of the best institutions in the world, mm. are now political, and people don't trust our institutions, like the CIA, the our FBI. We don't. Everything. Well, they might be political. wrong, but one they of the reasons why we don't trust them is they may not be right all the time, and that's that's something we have to accept. But admitting we do error have to pause. is different. We do have to pause, and we will talk about uh, the general who admitted uh, the error, General mm-hmm. McKinsey. When we come back, mm-hmm. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. At Social Security, we are always thinking of ways to save you time and make things easier. That's why we created My Social Security. A My Social Security account allows you to access your earnings, history, and benefits information, request a replacement Social Security card, get a proof of income letter, estimate and apply for benefits, and more. Save time. Go online. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov slash myaccount. Social Security. Securing today and tomorrow. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. 
she could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we go to Bill Schneider. Bill, another question, uh, a big story this past week, was when uh, General McKinsey uh, went on uh, international television and acknowledged that the, the recent drone attack uh, was a mistake and resulted in uh, 10 deaths, including seven children. And he went on and on, I think, at length, mm-hmm. explaining moment by moment what went wrong uh, is that going to be the new uh, modus operandi of uh, U.S. military uh, in the future insofar as uh, garnering world opinion when the United States makes uh, a mistake that large? Oh, God, I hope not. That was a terrible mistake. Yeah. It was an awful tragedy. I think the family is seeking some sort of compensation, maybe even mm-hmm. the right to come to the United States. But it was a terrible mistake. Uh, and he did it at length, tried to explain it and apologize for it. Apparently, we had mistaken one white Toyota for one that in- included a terrorist. I don't know the details of it. I'm not a military expert. Uh, but I know that it was an embarrassment for the military and for the United States. And we hope nothing like that ever happens again. Uh, some people might be embarrassed by the general's conduct, that that maybe he went too far and bending over backwards to apologize. I mean, he apologized, and then he apologized about five or six times, and then he got into the detail of it. And I'm just wondering, uh, especially when reparations might be uh, advisable here, uh, whether or not some people might think that he went too far. Did you think he go- went too far, um, Stephanie? I did. And, um, seven children. Yes, yeah, seven children. And, and you were describing it during the break. Yeah, yeah. and... I guess the other question I have is, why is he giving the apology? He's fairly, I mean, when you look at the the chain of command that issues these decisions and how these, and the protocols that go into these drone strikes, he's actually not at the top of that chain. He, it was almost as if he was the lowest ranking person who could, could you know, with a straight face, come out and give the, the apology. Yeah, but he was it the man in charge there. Yeah, but I mean, there, I mean that apology should have come from I believe that apology should have come from Yeah, I don't okay. know that that matters. I, I think the most important thing was coming out straightforwardly after the investigation to tell the world and to tell the American people what had happened, to apologize for a mistake that was made that had ended the life of seven children. I think it was a horrible mm-hmm. thing to have happened, and if this is the conduct of the military going forward, I think that's an important step in rebuilding our credibility. Uh, one uh, maybe last question, Bill, to you, and that is, uh, one of the reasons why Joe Biden uh, defeated uh, Donald Trump, 
if you believe that he did, and I, I do <laughs> believe yeah. that he did, uh, was uh, I do. <laughs> the, Amer- do. the American people or, or many Americans felt that Donald Trump had misplayed the COVID card. Hmm. And my question to you is, uh, there's an awful lot of people who have died on Joe uh, Biden's watch. There's been some confusion and uh, uh, back and forth and conflicting comments out of the CDC and the FDA. Um, Is this clearly Joe Biden's war on COVID now? Well, he's the president. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, everyone thought we had escaped the worst at the beginning of the summer Mm -hmm. when the death rate was going down. And all of a sudden, the Delta variant shows up. It had been prominent in Europe. It shows up and everything started getting worse again. Mm-hmm. I don't think people blame Joe Biden for this, but they do expect him to do something. Mm-hmm. And he's doing whatever he can. And right now he's uh, issued these executive orders for vaccination mandates. Mm-hmm. And to my surprise, they're widely accepted. Americans do understand mm-hmm. why we do need vaccination mandates. And they were just approved by a big margin in the recall election in California. That's mm-hmm. one of the reasons people supported the governor there, because they support vaccination mandates. Mm-hmm. And uh, when a mistake is made, like uh, announcing a program uh, for universal booster shots only to be mm-hmm. shot down a few uh, weeks later, a couple of weeks later by uh, the CDC and the FDA or the FDA specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that just uh, a politician talking too quickly without having the knowledge or did Joe Biden not listen to the science when he first spoke? I don't think the science was ever clear. Look, they had an argument within the scientific community over what to do. And apparently Mm -hmm. there were divisions among doctors and among scientists about exactly what order to issue. I don't think Joe Biden was expected to be a master of the science. He may have acted too quickly in saying he wanted to give everyone a booster shot starting September 20th Mm -hmm. uh, because it sounded like a good idea. And look, I know a lot of people who've gotten booster shots, even though they they don't under these rules qualify. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very confusing situation. But I don't think people expect Joe Biden to anticipate these scientific judgments when the scientists themselves don't exactly know what the seri- what what's going on. But I think Patrick? what we can say is broadly, the vast majority of Americans are sick of coronavirus, especially yeah. if it is if it is possible for policy decisions to end it. We are very ready for those decisions to be made, and I think. Uh, vaccine mandates for public employees is a good step forward. Uh, I really do think that um, this is going to come to the end, come to an end in the next six months. And I think Biden is going to receive the credit or blame that he deserves. And again, voters are going to decide in those states where the governors disagree uh, with Joe Biden. There's going to be an election and the people of that state, be that Florida, Texas or you name it, they're going to decide whether or not they like what Ron DeSantis has suggested or they like what Joe Biden has suggested. That's so the right. voters are going to decide on that in, in all these other states, and there will be uh, confusion because uh, they frequently are not on the same page. God bless democracy. Well, and, you know, what's interesting, though, is we are starting to see the Delta variant numbers are coming down. This mm-hmm. may resolve itself by the spring. Um, you know, if we don't see another dangerous variant coming up and, you know, or people is are getting a, boosters. Is it a own. political card to play for the for the Republicans, in your view, uh, Stephanie? Or is the uh, is COVID going to be an issue that people really want to run away from as quickly as possible think, when it's no longer life and death in their life? I, I, I think I think we're going to see that it's no longer life and death in their life, and that the 
I think the Republicans are going to are going to. Uh, um, it's interesting. There are two versions of this COVID battle, hmm. and one one is the vaccine. Mm-hmm. The other one are masks. Right. And right on that now, note, we are out of time. Stephanie Hitt, thank you very much for joining us. Patrick Hanley, thank you for joining us in studio. Our thanks uh, to Bill Schneider, uh, who is the veteran writer for The Hill. Bill, it's nice to have you back on Beyond the Beltway. Hope we can do it again. Thank you. Our thanks uh, to uh, our uh, good friend Frankie Rodriguez and also to uh, Kurt Smith, who joined us in our number one. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night from Elk Grove Village, Illinois. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, (laughs) tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council.